0: joining us for surgical site infection prevention master series. Thank you for all of you logged in. I see that you um, have joined us globally. And so we're really excited to spend the next 60 minutes with you. This will be essentially just an informal chat with our global panel trying to kind of find out from their expertise, how to best prevent surgical site infections. Now, on the interface, you'll see that there's a virtual auditorium, which is what we're in at the moment, but there's also an exhibitors hall. You can visit the virtual booths and pick up some key documents, uh, key papers we will also link the papers and the documents in this chat as well. So um, stay with us for the 60 minutes. Please interact, ask us questions throughout. We're really interested to know. what sort of practice you have and what your experience has been of surgical site infections. Um, Surgical site infections, unfortunately, present a real challenge for healthcare systems across the world, including in the UK, where we're based. But they also have a substantial impact on patients, healthcare professionals throughout the world. And the statistics, as you know, have shown that about 60% of these surgical site infections are actually completely preventable. Despite that, the rates are pretty high. Each patient that's undergoing a surgical procedure has a 5% chance of developing a surgical site infection, which is pretty high still. Um, you know, all the parameters and mechanisms we have to prevent it, were still pretty high at 5% of patients developing an SSI. And cost-wise, obviously costs NHS between 10,000 and 100,000 pounds per patient with post-surgery infections. And then it causes a lot of harm in terms of increased hospital stay, delaying going back to work for the patient. And generally, I guess, surgical site infections are caused by bacteria that get in through the incisions that we make in surgery. Um, and it's contributed a lot to the spread of antibiotic resistance, particularly in you know low and middle income countries. About 11% of patients in those countries are infected. And in Africa alone, one in five women who have a caesarean section end up having a wound infection. So this is a really important topic. And joining us tonight is an esteemed global panel, which includes Dr. Jonathan Johnson, who is the founder and surgical director of the comprehensive wound care service in Washington, BC. Um, also joining him is Dr. Mark Millen, who's the medical director for the West campus wound healing Institute of M health in Fairview. Minnesota. And we also have Dr. Hussein Kamal Ressa, who's the president of the Surgical Infection Society. And we've got Wendy Cole, director of wound care research at Kent State University, College of Podiatric Medicine. And we also have Dr. Michael Magro, who is a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist, joining us from London. So welcome to the panel. Nice to have you with us for the next 60 minutes. And we'll start with you, Jonathan. And let's just talk a little bit about surgical site infection identification.
1: Great to be here, thank you for the invitation and I'm humbled to be on this great panel with all these other excellent providers.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. You are very involved with wound care, both in the sort of outpatient as well as inpatient uh, community in Washington, DC. Um, You must have seen a lot of surgical site infections. What would you say to our viewers are one of the most important sort of um, surveillance techniques in order to identify early surgical site infection in your clinical practice?
1: Well, I appreciate being able to communicate with you guys and excited to talk a little bit about surgical site infection. So uh, being a surgeon and working on wounds for multiple years, one of the most important aspects we look at as far as surgical site infections are concerned is making sure that number one, you adequately close the wound and number two, make sure you have post-op review of the wound. If the patient needs antibiotics, start them on antibiotics. And if you do see any signs and symptoms of surgical side infections, erythema, induration, active purulent drainage, etc., cetera, you have to treat it very aggressively uh, to make sure that they do. And post-op surgical review and post-op surgical follow-up is key, whether it's an outpatient patient You want to make sure they come back within at least three to five days to review the surgical site infection.
0: Great. And when you're actually performing the surgery, so I guess you're doing a scope of aesthetic procedures as well as, I guess, sort of reconstructive wound type procedures. What's your general protocol for trying to minimize surgical site infection? So what kind of things do you do preoperatively?
1: Great question, so number one, it starts with great communication with your patient. We wanna make sure that our patients understand that this is a team-based approach. So the preoperative instructions that we convey to our patients are very important to continue to follow. We call our patients preoperatively to make sure they've either taken their preop antibiotics if required, or that they, we make sure that they've had adequate cleaning of the area making sure they're not scrubbing the skin, but just cleaning the area prior to coming in. And then everything should work in an active process. Number one, timeout in the OR, prepping the patient and explaining all educational issues prior to surgery. But then when we're in the operating room or we're at bedside before we even start the procedure, whether that's a graft, whether that's surgical debridement, is we wanna make sure we have a timeout We want to make sure that everyone involved understands what their role is, prep the area, explain to the patient what is going on and what the procedure is, make clean line incisions, make sure you go through the process extensively, close everything, and then make sure we're adequately putting a post-op dressing on. So. In other words, it's a process that starts literally before incision of the skin or the procedure even starts.
0: And um, in your mind, what groups of patients do you have a very high index of suspicion in terms of patients that are high risk for developing surgical site infections?
1: Great point. So number one, patients that are diabetic are at an increased risk for surgical site infections. Patients that have issues with coagulopathy or patients that have issues with ischemic problems or ischemic uh, issues or diseases or comorbidities are at an increased risk. But also patients that have actively had a surgical procedure before, and now you're either operating on an area that's close to where that surgical incision site is, or you're actually operating on the same surgical incision. Because sometimes patients do have adverse effects and you have to go back into that site in order to make sure that you can adequately help the patient heal effectively. So typically those three patients are who we tend to see uh, having increased risk of surgical site infections, but also we can't forget about patients that have autoimmune issues and nutritional defects as well are some of the things that we need to make sure we adequately prep the patient for prior to performing the procedures.
0: I'm sure our listeners are, are interested in sort of classifying in their minds. So we're talking about patient factors, which you discussed, mm-hmm. and then general factors. And I guess you've mentioned a really right. good point about colonization in a wound that's been recently operated on or adjacent. So in terms of surgical mm-hmm. prep, what's your, what's your sort of preference? How do you, um, sort of what, what's your go-to surgical prep?
1: is prepping the wound, it depends on whether the patient has active or acute or what we call increased colonization or critical colonization. Obviously, you have to remove the biofilm as much as you can because you want a nice, clean wound bed prior to grafting, prior to any type of surgical debridement. And then if you do find that there's increased colonization at the site, you want to remove it. And sometimes you can use Hippoclin, sometimes you can use Dakin's. It depends specifically on, number one, what you have, but number two, what the patient's body reacts to. So just specifically for us, we like to make sure we remove that biofilm as much as possible. And we use a device called Moleculite that looks at the fluorescent of the wound and it looks at the increased amount of bio burden and the increase amount of bacteria at the wound site prior to debreeding, but then also after debreeding to make sure we've removed as much of it as possible so it's a specific protocol that depends specifically on the patient
0: that's a really interesting point about biofilm can we just go to Wendy
2: cole um hello dr cole Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation to join this global panel. Thank you for
0: agreeing to talk to us about biofilm. Um, Do you think you could just run us through what
2: biofilm is? So what is a biofilm and what changes when bacteria enter into a biofilm construct? Well, a biofilm is a colony of this tenacious polymicrobial. So multiple organisms, bacteria, fungus, yeast, that form on the wound surface. So planktonic bacteria or free-floating bacteria will... uh, implant on, on the surface of a wound or a surgical incision. Um, and then they start to connect with one another. And uh, they do something that's called quorum sensing. They start to share information. They could share DNA, RNA, they could she- share uh antibiotic resistance as well. And they start to mutate and then they start to secrete something called an extra polymeric substance. And this extra polymeric substance, it's kind of like this wound ooze or goo that kind of forms this um, microdome that protects this biofilm. Interestingly enough, the organisms within a biofilm are not affected by oral and IV antibiotics. And and some topical antibiotics or antimicrobials have a difficulty penetrating through the biofilm uh, construct because of this extra polymeric substance. So these wounds, initially are not necessarily infected, but they are contaminated with with surface bacteria. The number and complexity of the microbes that are involved in this biofilm on the surface increases the patient's risk of of developing a wound infection. And then we also know that the presence of biofilm uh, will cause inflammation and cause wounds to be chronic. So we have biofilms that are uh, in the area of a surgical incision. If we allow them to develop, if we don't treat them appropriately, we can get incision site infections or SSIs. We can also get inflammation that continues and these wounds won't heal. So we all practice strategies to prevent infection and surgical site infection. And some of the strategies that are most commonly known in practice are these seven, uh, which is hand hygiene, washing our hands, washing our hands frequently, uh, environmental hygiene and cleaning our spaces, practicing aseptic technique, screening our patients, making certain that we understand our patients, their comorbidities and their underlying conditions. Surveillance, surveying our patients and really monitoring them closely, especially post-operatively. Practicing antibiotic stewardship, which we will talk a little bit about towards the end of my brief presentation. Uh, Following uh, practice guidelines, which I know some of our panels uh, are uh, very well-versed and have spoken about practice guidelines for infection control and then really helping to support a safety culture in our organizations and our clinics and our hospitals as well. So. Biofilm associated surgical site infections are are not something to take lightly. Uh, Surgery is a main cause of most hospital acquired infections. And the development of SSIs or surgical site infection is uh, typically due to the microbial contamination of the surgical site. And it's uh, from either endogenous or exogenous sources. Uh, most commonly though, it's the endogenous sources. Um, these can be superficial infections where we see surgical site uh, infections, but they can get into the deeper tissues and, and cause severe patient outcomes, affecting, you know, even underlying organism, organs rather, and then um, leading to uh, more surgical procedures that are necessary. Uh, and uh, long-term, we could see amputations like this particular fellow was a patient I saw in my clinic. He had an amputation of his fifth toe. Fifth toe continued to become infected. He also had lack of, of blood flow to his lower extremity, and then he ended up having a transmetatarsal amputation. And these are uh, possible postoperative complications that could have been minimized. So the idea of wound hygiene has really been taking hold in the wound care space and I think we should translate wound hygiene post-operatively too. Um, I'm not convinced we're doing a great job uh, to treat our post-operative incision sites to prevent biofilm formation and, and to uh, really practice good wound hygiene. So in order to remove biofilms, we must practice good hydrine, and this is a systemic approach uh, where this strategy consists of wound cleansing, uh, both the wound and the peri-wound tissue. Uh, you would be surprised if you had special imaging to see, you know, the bacteria content on any body part, not only is the incision site potentially affected or infected with uh, pathologic levels of bacteria, but the peri wound is too. So we have to use antimicrobial washes, surfactants to loosen the devitalized tissue and debris in the surgical site or surgical incision, but also in that peri wound tissue so that bacteria doesn't seed into the incision site. On occasion, we might need to debride the wound, especially if we've had a a wound dehiscence because of an infection. So we want to do mechanical, sharp, enzymatic, even potentially biologic if you choose as, as a health uh, care professional, uh, to remove all that devitalase tissue because that is a nidus for infection. That's where bacteria like to kind of live and grow and replicate and, and cause problems. Uh, and then choosing the appropriate dressing too. We need to manage exudate. Uh, we need to control the exudate, remove the exudate from the incision site, and a, a lot of uh, newer bandages that are entering into the market also have antimicrobial properties that can help to assist in uh, wound hygiene and uh, hopefully prevent biofilm bacteria from reforming and help to uh, control any kind of surgical site infection. So. Wound hygiene is so important. It's every time, every patient, every wound. And we have to be consistent with that if we're going to be successful. So we talked about antimicrobial stewardship and this idea is is, is so important. We know the world is facing a crisis because we have a rising rate of bacterial resistance because we overuse antibiotic agents and antibiotic resistance is directly a result of this overuse. So many of our patients will go to the emergency department or their primary care doctor. And the first thing that they do is write them a script for uh, an antibiotic, right? It's a knee jerk reaction. And I've seen statistics that say, you know, 90% of the antibiotic prescriptions that are written are unnecessary. So I think we could do a lot better. We know that prior treatment with commonly used antibiotics actually increases our patient's risk of infection. It also increases our patient's risk of morbidity and longer hospital stays and overall increased healthcare costs and mortality. So, we're, again, we're not doing them a service by writing them unnecessary antibiotics. So we really could do a, a better job and, and really practice better antimicrobial stewardship. So, what is antimicrobial stewardship? So, these programs uh, are initiated in clinics or, or in hospitals that uh, help that reduce the rates of antimicrobial resistance. Really helps to support better clinical care and outcomes, and lowers healthcare costs. So step number one, avoid antibiotics when they're not indicated. So wound infections should be diagnosed clinically. There should be signs and symptoms of infection noted just because there's a wound and we know they're mostly colonized doesn't mean they need antibiotics. Only infected wounds need antibiotics. Antimicrobials, though, surface uh, Topical agents, dressings might be useful in in some of these patients. We want to prescribe the appropriate regimen, narrowest spectrum for the likely bacteria present. We just don't want to, you know take a, a guess or, or throw, you know, a, a dart board, a dart to a dart board. We really want to know what is the pathologic agent and tailor our back antibiotics uh, to that bacteria. So culture results are important in doing that. And, and it's often unnecessarily to treat those low virulence bacteria that we get results for in culture. You don't have to treat every single bacteria that we get on culture. Really just pick those most common or most frequent pathogens that we're seeing. And order therapy for the correct duration, just long mm-hmm. enough to achieve symptom resolution. Consider treating patients with the topical therapy sooner and usually about one, two weeks at maximum uh, for soft tissue infections and six weeks for a bone infection. And then always choose the agent that shows the less risk and uh, best outcomes to avoid adverse reactions to our patients we talked about you know antimicrobial dressings there's so many different antimicrobial dressings that are in the market so you know i'm a big believer in using those first if we don't have those signs and symptoms of infection you know purulence, redness, warmth, pain, odor. Uh, If if we just see one of those and it's mild and we think that the surgical site is becoming uh, contaminated and and might be at the verge of of being infected, try an antimicrobial agent. And and there's many, many different antimicrobial agents out there. There's uh, products that have silver, products that have PHMB. There's a lot of hypochlorous acid uh, solutions that are out there and you know, so much, so many more. There's surfactant agents that are antimicrobial. Uh, there's a whole host of new dressings that entered into the market. We could do a, a whole uh, talk on that and maybe we will in the future, but, but always keep that in the back of your mind to try those topical antimicrobial dressings first before using oral and IV antibiotics when, when you don't see those fulminant signs uh, of infection.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how you identify um, a surgical site infection early in your patients? You did mention telehealth is a, is a big component of your clinical practice, um, but you know, obviously a, a patient in person and a patient remotely, what are the sort of things that you're looking for?
1: Great question. So telehealth has emerged within the, obviously, of the last couple of years based on the pandemic, COVID, et cetera. And it's an excellent tool that we can use for surveillance, but also monitor our patients. So some of the number one things that we either look for or tell our patients or our patients caregiver, caregivers to look for is number one, redness or erythema around the wound site. Number two, induration or a thickness or hardness around the wound site. And Number three, active purulent drainage or what we call discolorization coming from the wound site. We also want to look at warmth at the wound site and pain as well at the wound site. Now, if you're looking at a surgical site that has sutures or uh, staples that are still intact, some of those can contribute to the wound being infected or causing pain or having issues with erythema, So your next call is to seek medical attention as quickly as possible. Call the surgeon or call the provider that you were working with that, uh, you know, close the surgical site to make sure you don't have any active infections. But the number one thing, erythema, induration, your warmth and your pain, and then your active drainage are some of the things that we specifically tell our patients to look out for from a telemedicine standpoint.
0: And what a great point that you've raised in that the pain can sometimes be infection in a cavity Correct. or in a tight space or a mm-hmm. tight closure or the presence of a multi-layer closure with pressure underneath. So um, obviously excellent point for our viewers to note on there. Um. Yeah. Now, can I take you to what groups of patients may not manifest surgical site infection in those ways that you've identified? So which sort of groups of patients are we you know have to have a high index of suspicion for who may not you know who may not present with those those things do you do you think in children there is a different pattern of presentation is it mechanism of basically the child is able to withstand a lot more sepsis before presentation so sometimes may present late or are there any sort of groups of patients that you think may not present in the typical fashion that you've identified?
3: Great
1: point. So typically patients, as we discussed before, that have autoimmune issues and patients that have diabetic issues and patients that have extensive comorbidities may not show the active signs and symptoms of infection acutely as someone or some patient that does not have these comorbidities. So you want to make sure, specifically in patients that are diabetic, specifically in patients that have autoimmune issues, that you're regularly checking on the wound, discussing any issues with changes of the skin and any of the aforementioned signs or symptoms. But one of the major things that we need to focus on as well is patients that have darker skin tones. And this goes back to a lot of research with molecular light and looking at the bacterial burden and fluorescence at the wound site in patients that have darker skin. So if we look at what we call the Fitzpatrick scale, we look at our FP1 all through all the way through FP6, typically patients that are FP1, uh, they are fair skinned and they typically uh, t- uh, burn and tan. And then our patients that are FP6 typically are darker skinned and they don't burn and they don't tan. But the signs and symptoms of again, erythema, induration, pain, and changes in the skin uh, warmth and temperature may not be apparent in patients that have darker skin. And typically those are your patients, FP or Fitzpatrick, four, five, and six. And we did a study utilizing moleculite that did have increased bacterial burden and surgical site infections, or just wound care infections in general, because we can see the increased amount of that bacterial burden and fluorescence in the patients that may not have what we call active clinical signs and symptoms through just straight observation. So again, your patients that have comorbidities and your patients that have a darker skin tone. So it's very, very important to monitor, check with those
4: patients, make sure they're doing okay.
1: The number one thing we do is first of all, you have to observe the wound. Take a look at the wound Uh, determine the amount of erythema, determine the amount of induration, determine the amount of active purulent or abnormal color of exudate at the wound site. So observe, talk to your patient. Is there increased pain? Is there increased temperature at the wound site? Then you wanna look at other foreign bodies at the wound site. Does the patient have staples? Does the patient have uh, sutures? you know, is the patient's status post a total knee where there are implants at that site, or are they status post mastopexy with uh, implants at a specific uh, site, then you want to make sure that either you remove them, right, or you want to start them on antibiotics and make sure that you can decrease the infection as quickly as possible to make sure that the patient improves quickly. Uh, The other issue you want to look at is that if the patient is post-stop and they have active drainage, say they have active drainage from a total hip or a total knee arthroplasty, you wanna put a dressing over top of the site to see if you can decrease the amount amount of infection actively and topically before you start the antibiotics. So sometimes in long-term care, if the patient does have uh, active infection and drainage from the wound site, we will use a silver alginate, or a product that has a silver component in order to hopefully stop that, uh, that active infection as well as utilizing the PO antibiotics. And then if we need to remove the staples or the sutures, we will after discussing everything with the operating surgeon. That's kind of our algorithm. So we typically focus on utilizing moleculite, but there is a role for culturing the wound and obviously biopsying of the wound if the wound is not progressing after you've initiated the standard of care management. And we do utilize that if the wound continues to decline after we've used PO antibiotics or after we've used topical antibiotics. But typically, that is what we call a game time decision or a wound time decision, if I could quote that and and, uh, put that into the lexicon, Uh, because it just kind of depends on how the patient reacts post operatively. Because if you do need to utilize the culture or the biopsy, it's something that you can do. But if not, um, what you want to focus on is just your standard of care.
0: Thank you so much much, Dr. Johnson, for your contribution. Let's go over to Dr. Melin now and find out a little bit in depth of other factors that may be important in surgical site infections. Over to you, Dr. Melin.
5: So I'm Mark Molina. I'm one of the wound care surgeons at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So surgical site infection is really, as we talked to the surgery residents about this in a wound care fellowship, it it starts with prevention. So early identification of suspected surgical site infections is critical. So this is gonna be based upon preoperative risk factor assessment, interoperative factors such as length of procedure, complications, transfusions, and of course perioperative and interoperative body temperature management is critical. There are bear huggers, et cetera, and this all helps improve circulation, vasodilatation, coagulation, and preventing coagulopathies, as well as overall immune function and immune regulation. When it comes to management of post-operative surgical site infections, we now have entered in a new world with telehealth management. And I think this sometimes can improve because we can fit patients in that are concerned about their incisions, but it can also complicate um, making the diagnosis. So I would encourage everybody that if there's ever a question on a telehealth interview, bring the patient in for a physical examination and bring that patient in in a a soon fashion. So obviously the signs and symptoms, we've all been taught in our medical training are listen to the patient, ask the patient the symptoms. So fevers, chills, are there cognitive changes? Sometimes getting a history from a family member can be very important as well. And when we're looking at the wound, we're looking for redness, increasing pain out of proportion, increasing drainage, or a, train, a change in the drainage. We might talk about a purulent or a, a dishwater type of um, uh, uh, serosanguinous drainage. In laboratory evaluations, we can look for an elevated white blood cell count. We can look for left shift. We can see decrease in renal function and other, and other changes, anemia. And, and really kind of that covers the some of these 10 that we're looking for perioperatives, but I really wanna go back and emphasize prevention, which fits into all of these. So one of the least talked about components with preoperative management of patients is nutrition. And albumin, I think has gotten a little bit of a bad hit in terms of a marker or nutrition. And it may actually not be as good a marker for nutrition as it's a more important marker for Degree of vascular hyperpermeability. So, the albumin is a significant component of something called the endothelial glycocalyx. It helps with permeability, much like Gore Tex within a rain uh, jacket. And as a, con- a constituent of the endothelial glycocalyx, when the albumin is low, there's increased microvascular hyperpermeability. This results in increased tissue edema, and this can compromise micro vascular arterial perfusion at the five micron level. So at, the, at one third the size of your hair at five microns. And this is where all oxygen and nutrient delivery truly occurs. So I think we need to start thinking about albumin not as a true marker of nutrition, but as a marker of endothelial cell health and helping ultimately with oxygen or indirectly with oxygen nutrient delivery to the incisions that we're making our patients and expect to heal. Also control of perioperative hyperglycemia and almost counterintuitively, preoperative carbohydrate loading in patients can actually help with postoperative hyperglycemia management. Now, this has been recognized in multiple surgical guidelines, and I would counsel you to seek out those guidelines and talk to your nutritionists within the hospital about uh, preoperative carbohydrate loading, which is now a very validated method for assisting in um, uh, glycemic, glycemic control perioperatively. And the other important thing to focus on is micronutrients. within our wound clinic, We routinely use micronutrients in uh, addition to standard of care protein. And the micronutrients we are utilizing are all focused on endothelial cell function. So, vitamin D has an important role of uh, emphasizing microvascular functionality. Uh, Certainly in Minnesota, where we're on the 45th parallel. Uh, we have a lot of vitamin D deficiency. So the range typically is 30 to 80. We want to push patients more towards that higher end. So it's not unusual to be using 3 to 5,000 international units of vitamin D on a daily basis. Vitamin C at 1,000 milligrams can help decrease inflammation, which will certainly help improve microvascular perfusion. B12 and B6 uh, and methylfolate, all of those can be part of that methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase uh, pathway that's connected with homocysteine that ultimately results in um, recoupling endothelial nitric oxide synthetase to maximize nitric oxide perfusion or uh, production, which results in vasodilatation, lymphangion contractility, as well as immune functionality. And for those patients that have been on recent steroids, don't forget to add in vitamin A, that helps, of course, with vitamin C in terms of uh, collagen production. And micronized purified flavonoid fractions, diosmin, asperidin, have also been shown to be a significant component of improving microvascular health uh, they're inflammation quenching. They decrease ICAM, VCAM, improve venous function, and improve lymphangion uh, functionality. We're going to hit on a couple more of these elements here, but I just wanted to point out the epic nature of the endothelial glycocalyx because this is about helping to prevent um post-operative surgical site infections, as well as getting them to heal because this relates back to the functions we need for microvascular perfusion. So endothelial cell function with nitric oxide and other cytokine production, the permeability layer we discussed with albumin levels, preventing inflammation, so MMP uh, management. And then this is also what helps control the coagulation pathways within the vasculature. This again just points out the importance of albumin within an intact glycocalyx to decrease the tissue edema. And again, we all recognize tissue edema as an impediment ultimately to uh, wound healing. And certainly when you have increased edema, you also have increased risk of developing perioperative uh, surgical site infections. This was a meta-analysis that was published in 2017 in the uh, British Medical uh, Journal for uh, Surgery. And again, demonstrating. now this was an orthopedic uh, population, but it, we can look at this in terms of our own uh, patients who were operating it on And in this meta-analysis, it found that an album of less than 3.5 had an associated 2.5 times increased risk of surgical site infections. And this was statistically associated with an increased and in negative impact on outcomes. And then in David Armstrong et al.'s a study that was published demonstrating specifically on oral nutri, uh, nutrition supplements with uh, healing DFUs, the addition of things like arginine, glutamine, beta hydroxy, uh, methylbutyrate all can help improve standard of care with uh, healing diabetic foot ulcers, in addition to obviously offloading, maximizing ma- uh, vascular perfusion, and controlling the lymphedema that's associated with uh, diabetic foot ulcerations. If we get down to the actual cellular level, we're looking at the lymphedema of diabetes because controlling that swelling with diabetic foot ulcers, in addition to offloading, is very critical. This is one of the reasons I really enjoy utilizing the SD Total Contact Cast, because I think I get good compression to manage that lymphedema component as well as excellence and offloading. So the hyperglycemia of diabetes results in shedding of components of the glycocalyx, which results in increased hyperpermeability and increased leakage of uh, fluid and proteins into the extracellular matrix. And this ultimately results in uh, decreased collagen production and fibrosis. Now, there's three really important parts to the the vasculature. It's the endothelial cells, but it's also the parasites that help with endothelial cell uh, overall health. It's a critical part of endothelial cell function, as is the luminal component of the glycocalyx. When we wrap in then chronic venous disease recognition, lymphedema recognition, lipedema recognition, and undiagnosed PAD recognition into treatment of our patients, especially for lower extremities, this upstream thinking can also decrease post-operative development of surgical site infections. In a paper that was published in 2021, again, this was looking at total knee arthroplasties, recognizing the annual incidence of chronic venous disease being as high as 6% in women and 2% in men, this can certainly impact a knee incision and result ultimately in increased incisional site complications. So upstream management of chronic venous disease can ultimately decrease postoperative uh, incision. So we can see this from our podiatry colleagues, as well as our orthopedic colleagues, as well as certainly from a, uh, a vascular surgery standpoint where uh, axial ablation, uh, whether it's with a, a, a thermal or whether it's with cy- cyanoacrylate can be very beneficial in management. Also, utilization specifically in patients that have lymphedema associated uh, preoperatively, obtaining uh, consultation with certified lymphedema therapists and preoperative management for tissue edema reduction. So doing manual lymphatic drainage, there may be lymphedema pumps utilized, complete decongestive physiotherapy, teaching patients how to diaphragmatic breathe to improve uh, lymphatic function through the cisterna kylie and up into the thoracic duct. So all these components are very important. So when we get volume reduction before operating on the lower extremity or an upper extremity and somebody who maybe had, had breast cancer, volume reduction results in increasing microvascular perfusion, that is how we heal incisions. That also improves immune function and that's how we prevent surgical site infections. And it's also important to recognize the inc- increasing incidence of asymptomatic peripheral arterial disease. And certainly this also correlates with potential um, major adverse cardiovascular events. So by identifying peripheral arterial disease, we also then can pay more, better attention to things uh, such as carotid disease, coronary artery disease, because many of these are asymptomatic. So in patients with peripheral arterial disease, Uh, In a 1,000 knee cases, they found that in 38 uh, knees undergoing total uh, knee arthroplasty, that they had unrecognized peripheral arterial disease. This can certainly be a very complicating course. Uh, Patients that end up with a total knee end up could have a higher risk of developing a pressure ulceration on the heel or other toes downstream from where where the incision was, which then can certainly complicate healing of the uh, joint itself or subsequent development of um, Of a joint infection, we also know that there is an association of chronic venous or major adverse cardiovascular events associated just simply with having chronic venous disease. The endothelial cell function. There's three trillion endothelial cells throughout the body, and over the course of sixty thousand miles of lymphatics, uh, venous, and uh, arteries. And so if we start to think about venous varicosities as actually a systemic disease with endothelial cell dysfunction, and this is what this really important part of research from May of 2022 in Journal of Vascular Surgery, Venous and Lymphatic Disorders is showing, is that in uh, 774 patients, severe, so C3, C4, C5, C6, severe chronic venous disease, there was an increased risk of major adverse cardiovascular events. This was statistically significant, and the take-home message was that uh, treating uh, severe CVD can actually have a positive impact on major uh, adverse cardiovascular events. I think there's a lot more research to do here. There's, of course, uh, data now on the PISO-1, the PISO-2 channels that are biosensors. They're associated with uh, varicose vein function. That's Some of that data has come out of Stanford. But starting to recognize the intricacies of endothelial cell function as a holistic approach can improve not just our uh, surgical sites, but, but it can truly improve um, a whole patient outcome. And this is just another graph from that paper demonstrating it's not just around the time of the Uh, procedure of management, the long-term outcome actually stretches out to three, four, and five years. So really having downstream effects in terms of uh, management. The accurate identification of uh, surgical site infections, because we have to be aware of the atypicals, which may just simply be inflammation without cellulitis. Certainly if there was a recent incision in the leg, Uh, we have to make sure that that is not the cause. And and we should suspect that's the cause until proven otherwise. Certainly in the immunosuppressed patient, the elderly is those with cognitive disorders. It may, surgical site infections may present in a relatively atypical fashion. So having a high degree of suspicion is so important as clinicians. And this was a case that we actually published earlier this year. This was a total hip arthroplasty with an anterior approach that we were asked to evaluate in the hospital, uh, thinking that it might be some degree of Uh, Marked cellulitis, uh, even uh, gangrenous cellulitis could require immediate surgical management, but she didn't have any systemic symptoms. The wound looked kind of odd, no inflammatory bowel disease, non-diabetic, elevated BMI, lymphatic dysfunction, and we obtained uh, biofluorescence imaging, which interestingly enough showed absolutely zero Uh, porphyrins or proveridins or cyanins. And you can see the incision line on the left, and this is compared to what we would expect to see in a markedly infected. And so this was the first uh, reported in literature of acute pyoderma using biofluorescence imaging to show something that actually didn't need surgical management. So again, be aware of those potential uh, atypicals. The Dermal lymphatics are so dense within the skin, and this is just a highlight. It's like a shag carpet. This is from a a mirroring model, but this also correlates well with what's going on within the human. And this is one of my cases from a clinic that I debrided, and you can just see the engorged dermal lymphatics. When this degree of dermal lymphatics are present, we know that the immune system is not functioning correctly as lymphatic stasis results in immune dysfunction, hence higher risk for um, uh, cellulitis. We also know that application of manual lymphatic drainage in the form of like negative pressure wound therapy actually improves uh, peri wound um, interstitial edema reduction. There may be some positive impact on peri wound lymphangion contractility and then using things like edema wear and other um, uh, components that have microstruts within the skin. This stimulates the dermal lymphatics to function better to remove interstitial edema. And this is a paper that was published out of Australia. I believe this was about uh, four years ago, but I thought this was a really nice demonstration of how um, impacting the dermis actually separates the lymphatic capillary cells to allow E- ingress of subcutaneous fluid. This is what ends up in dil- uh, dilatation and subsequent diastolic contraction. And this is really what gets the whole lymphatic uh, system functioning. When you get lymphatic system functioning, you improve, uh, again, immune function as well as microvascular perfusion. So dermal lymphatics, I think, are the next big thing in terms of management to help us prevent um, surgical site infections. And this is a book that just was published this year out of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine demonstrating the intricate connection between the immune system and in improving tissue regeneration. So where does incisional negative pressure wound therapy play a a role right now? Well, part of it is identifying upstream uh, risk factors where a patient may benefit from utilizing it. And obviously application immediately in the operating room is so critical. If you apply um, incisional negative pressure wound therapy, three, four days later, when the patient's already got signs of um, uh, surgical site infection, you won't get uh, the outcomes you expect. You've got to start to use this in patients' risk stratification that are high risk right away. So in this particular, uh, again, this was an orthopedic application with primary hip or knee arthroplasty, risk factors being elevated BMI, diabetes, immunodeficiency, active smoking, uh, non-aspirin, anticoagulation, and prior surgery where obviously there's already incisional or lack of incisional integrity. So this demonstrated the risk of um, developing a post-prosthetic Uh, a post-operative periprosthetic joint infection can vary from 0.56 to as high as 20%, depending on the patient's risk factors. And I think there's a lot for us to learn from this scoring system because we have to start thinking of our patients in this type of personalized manner because not every patient's the same. And as we start to risk stratify, we can start to give precision care to our patients that will improve outcomes. So closed incisional negative pressure therapy dressings, can be a very powerful tool for reducing superficial uh, surgical site uh, uh, complications in high-risk patients. And again, this was uh, specifically speaking to total knees and total hips, but this has also been shown in the uh, vascular surgery literature, which I again, I think we can benefit from looking at these types of procedures and um, and uh, utilizing this to think about all of the incisions that we're making. So in this particular single center randomized trial it involved 119 high risk femoral incisions and negative pressure wound therapy applied. Again, right in the operating room, it decreased wound infections 8.5% compared to 25% and fewer readmissions and these two things account for a significant negative in terms of overall healthcare economics. It's post-operative wound infections, especially if you have to take out a prosthetic and then the readmission rate decreasing from 6.8, or decreasing to 6.8% versus 16.7% in this vascular surgery um, as compared to standard gauze dressing. So this study recommends that negative pressure wound therapy be used in high risk Femoral incisions, again, you have to risk stratify. So they demonstrated based on age, BMI, presence of a panis, was it a redo operation, placement of a prosthetic graft, poor nutrition, immunosuppression, elevated hemoglobin A1C. Again, emphasizing the importance of preoperative risk stratification. So, application of the negative pressure therapy to groin incisions at high risk helped decrease the rate of major wound complications, need for reoperation, and patient readmissions. This actually resulted in a therapy associated uh, cost of approximately six thousand dollars per index case. And obviously, some of these cases can be much uh, more expensive than simply six thousand. So, in conclusion, preoperative assessment involves an honest risk assessment. Slow down surgical momentum. And we as surgeons, it's one of the hardest things to do when you've made a a decision to operate on somebody. But if we haven't been honest in our risk assessment, we may be putting the patient at risk. Prevention is cost-effective, prevention upstream and downstream can actually have holistic systemic improvement for cares as demonstrated by uh, major adverse cardiovascular events. Complications really carry the gravity of thought in our minds and our shoulders. And you know, we, we go home thinking about this stuff at night and we don't want anybody to have a surgical site infection.
2: And I can honestly
5: say and, and very humbly that I have failed way too many times uh, in this effort in the search of perfection so we've got to really pull back the veil of time and vision and re-challenge ourselves on outcomes with honesty and integrity and the patients will only become more complicated over the next decade and blaming patients for lack of adherence or compliance will never improve our outcomes so as professionals we really have to choose wisely counsel appropriately and choose the best correct time and uh preoperative interventions such as certified lymphedema therapists, compression, edema reduction, nutrition maximization to result in decreasing, uh, minimized postoperative complication risk. And it's really what we would ask and expect from our family and ourselves.
0: And we're over to Dr. McGro now, and he's going to be talking to us a little bit about strategies for reducing post-cesarean section infections.
3: So, we in Barking, Havering, and Redbridge Universities Hospitals, NHS Trust, which is a hospital situated in northeast London in England. So, we're the third biggest single site maternity hospital in the country. So, we have lots of patients and obviously lots of data to go with that. So, what I'd like to talk you through is how we have had a very good success story. reducing surgical site infections after caesarean section. So what am I going to take you through? Basically, I'm going to talk about the aims that we had for our project. What were we trying to achieve? Talk you through how we actually did achieve those and then actually come on to the specifics of what did our project show? And also for us, which was really important, what cost savings did we make from that? So within England, we have NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, And they produced guidelines. And one of the guidelines they produced in 2021 was looking at RCT data to actually show that after cesarean section, if we used a dressing called Leukomed Sorbact, we should reduce our cesarean section surgical site infections. And as a consequence of that also save money. So for those of you that don't know, Leukomed Sorbact is a bacteria binding sterile wound dressing. It can be applied for up to seven days and not only does it act as a barrier for infection getting in and is also waterproof so it can be showered on Um, can patients can have a shower with it on and it also actually sucks the bacteria away from the wound and traps it within the dressing so the bacteria load at the surgical site is less so we switched over from the meepore dressings that we were previously using and one of the things that we really wanted to make sure was actually does this dressing do what it says on the tin does it reduce infection rates does it save us money does it improve outcomes for women so how did we do that one of the things that we wanted to do was make sure that we were comparing like for like data so we switched over the wound dressings on the 1st of January 2022 Prior to that, we collected 12 months' worth of data collection, which is the old MEPO dressing, and we collected on all women that had a caesarean section, because all of our women were having exactly the same dressing used. Then we collected exactly the same data for period one, which was the first six months of using the new dressing, from the 1st of January to the 30th of June 2022. We searched all our different data collection sources. We have an online source called E3 which is where the midwives input all the data after cesarean but we also looked at our readmission rates we looked at the amount of antibiotics that we used and most of these were cared for in the community by the midwives and the midwives have a special um, record of anything that happens to those women whether or not they get a wound infection whether they got readmitted to hospital. In terms of the practical implementation, because that was also part of this, we wanted to make sure that not only were we looking at the number of women that got readmitted into hospital with a bad wound infection, we wanted to see what were the SSI rates for those women in the community that maybe might not come back to hospital. So for us in England, a lot of women might see their general practitioner. They might actually only be dealt with by the midwife in the community. They might not come back to hospital for care unless the wound was severely infected. We wanted to make sure we collected that data as well. One of the things that I think makes our project really robust is that we did actually have an external auditor provided to us by SOT who had an honorary contract with us at the trust so for us they were working uh, directly for our hospital trust and not for SOT but actually their role was to collect this data in a lot more detail than I would have been able to as a clinician on the ground. For us, the wound dressings were roughly £10 per person and our previous wound dressings were much cheaper. They were only about £1 per patient. So also what we wanted to see is if we are using a much more expensive wound dressing and this was going to be something that we carried on over time, did that cost that we put into it actually make a a difference for us? Was it a worthwhile investment? And that's where we took it to our procurement advisory group within our trust Took them this business case and said this is what we're planning on looking at uh, and this is our data at six months to see if we should continue and in terms of staff training we've obviously heard from the last talk around the importance of leadership and teamwork and I think what's really important is that to get this project up and running we only required two weeks of really in-depth training but we trained everybody across the board so that was our scrub nurses and our theatre team who are actually applying the wound dressings it was the obstetricians and the surgeons doing the operations. It was our midwives who were looking after the women on the postnatal ward. It was the community midwives that would be removing the dressing and looking for any signs of infection. And we did that in a variety of methods. We did it online teaching sessions, face-to-face, drop-in sessions at a variety of different times throughout the day and evening to capture as many people as possible. And I think that was really one of the, the key aspects that, that drove this project. So if I take you through that six months worth of data, I'm sure you're interested in the figures now. So on the next slide, you can see that throughout a 12 month period, we had 2,436 women who had a cesarean section, and that ended up giving us a a SSI rate of 6.1%. So roughly in terms of best NHS figures, it fluctuates but we're potentially looking at not being a a bad unit in the first place people say less than 10 percent is relatively good Um, and I think that's also important to mention because we haven't started at a very high SSI rate and therefore seen a massive improvement because we've just done a small amount of improvement Um, we've actually started at a very decent SSI rate and have still noticed quite a big improvement. So if you then look at the rest of the tables, what I've really tried to do is compare 2021 data to 2022, but specifically the six months, so January to June, so again that we're comparing like for like. And the first thing that you'll see is that we actually reduced our SSI rate from 6.2 to 3.4%, so it had a huge 45% reduction in surgical site infections. When we then looked at whether or not those women had serious wound infections or actually readmitted into hospital and spent time admitted into hospital afterwards, obviously something that no new mum wants to do, we noticed that not only did we have a reduction in the number of patients being readmitted, but also when we specifically looked at how long those women stayed in hospital. So the column that's entitled number of readmission days, you can see that we've reduced the number of days that women spent in hospital from 70 days to 27. So a huge 61% drop in the number of days that women spent. So I think not only are we reducing surgical site infections, we're actually reducing those severe infections and reducing the number of days that women need to spend in hospital. At that sort of really vulnerable time when they've got a newborn baby and, and just want to be spending their time at home. What we also noticed was that as well as reducing both of those, we actually found that the number of antibiotics that we were needing to prescribe for women with surgical site infections after a cesarean section dropped by 36%. So if we just very briefly look at some of the demographics, you can see that the average patient attending our hospital in 2021 and 2022 was the same. We didn't suddenly have a spike of women that were much more obese or or different or older that might have affected our data. And for me, this next graph is probably the most important. You can really clearly see that variation month to month in terms of what a surgical site infection is. It doesn't sit at one number, it fluctuates. But when we introduced the Leukomed sawback, so the, so the pinky purple line, you can see that instantly in January, there was a drop of infection rates. And what I think is really int- impressive is that that has carried along along the same trajectory over the first six months. You might have thought that if this was a project where infection rates dropped because of the education or the training that was put in in those two weeks and people potentially had more of a focus on reducing infection rates, you might get an initial drop but then over time, you'd probably expect it to creep back up to normal. And you can clearly see that that hasn't happened. Just very briefly, I'll take you through some of these slides, but you can see that our surgical site infection rate reduced by 45%. When you look at type of procedure, you can see that it reduced the most during planned operations and less so during emergency. And that's probably what you would expect because you can un- you, most emergency operations come with a higher risk of infections globally. But we still had a good 40% reduction in those women having an emergency caesarean. This graph really just shows you where those infections were diagnosed. And in that middle bar chart, you can see that six women, roughly 8% of women using the old dressing actually after their operation, before they were even discharged from hospital, were diagnosed with a wound infection so these are wound infections happening pretty soon after the, in- the operation whereas with the new wound dressing actually no women had an infection in that immediate post-operative period and and all of these women were diagnosed in the community when we look at our readmission rates we've talked about this before nearly 36 percent reduction in readmission rates but on the next chart again just really clearly showing you that two of those women um, were readmitted twice, which is why you've got that 45% reduction in, in one graph. But also when we really, really look at the number of days women spent in hospital. And for us, that's also where probably not only is that where the most improvement you get in patient experience, but it's also where most of the cost savings come from. What we found was really also interesting is that those women who did get readmitted with the Leucomed Sorbat dressing actually stayed in hospital for a shorter period of time. So you might've thought that we'd reduce infection rates, but when they did get admitted, the same sort of problem would happen. And that may be because the amount of bacteria at the wound site is reduced by using the Leucomed Sorbat dressing. So the infections potentially were not as serious, which also fits with why we might've used fewer antibiotics for those women. Again, very briefly looking at readmission bed days, you can see that it does fluctuate. Some months you're gonna have big spikes, but the trend for us since using Leukomed sorbact has been improved. Again, just showing antibiotic usage has dropped. Also, we had very few serious wound complications in terms of actually women needing to go back to the operating theater and having their wound debrided or having a repeat operation, but we did show a slight improvement in that also. And I think this is also a really interesting graph because within NHS practice at least or within NICE guidance there's a talk about whether or not you need to use vacuum dressings for women with a very high BMI and this is a question I get asked a lot. So one of the things that we did to standardise this, we used the same dressing in all of our women, emergency or elective zone, it didn't matter on age, it didn't matter on BMI, everybody just got the same dressing. And you can actually see it's the women with the highest BMI, those more than 45 that actually had the biggest reduction. So when you think about, do we need to switch over to other fancy, more expensive type dressings, for us Mm -hmm. at the moment, that's not something that we need to do. So very briefly, this is just a summary of everything we've talked about, but ultimately you can see the arrows are all going in, in the right direction. And and we're really pleased with these results, and it's something that we're going to be continuing long term, but our audit data is going to continue for the full 12 months as well. Very briefly, um, obviously this is a global talk, but in terms of cost savings for us, these are very big figures. So in terms of what's an average cost for a surgical site infection, it's probably about £4,000 based on study by Jenks et al., When we looked at the number of SSIs that we reduced in that six month period, we were able to save nearly 140,000 pounds. And that's after taking into account the additional costs of the wound dressings. And that's the saving for sort of the whole community. When we looked specifically at our own trust figures, we were able to find that if you use this dressing on every woman, you would save money every single time you use it. So even though the dressing was more expensive, we were saving £22.50 per patient. And what you have to remember are two things. That cost saving excludes some of the costs that we were just not able to figure in. So antibiotic usage, a e attendances. So the cost saving is actually probably higher than that. But also this is going to be a recurring saving that happens every time that we use this. So this is just going to be an ongoing thing for us that's, that's really beneficial.
0: Thank you. Very much, Michael. And in fact, um, when you were comparing it to MIPOR, I mean, certainly um, the duration of period that normally MIPOR would stay on for, I don't think correlate as as well as the sort of period of time you can keep this dressing on for um, in terms of longevity, I suppose, of of a dressing, if you can call it that.
3: Yeah, so my understanding is that the NICE guidelines actually recommended that MIPOR dressings are removed or at least changed after every 48 hours. Um,
0: but they're not
3: they're not waterproof you can't shower with them on Um, so most of our women were having them were removed after two days women really really like these new dressings the fact that they can go home and know that their wound is covered up and that they can then go and shower with it and it's not going to fall off they absolutely love And
0: and what's your experience with your colleagues that are in sort of I guess, throughout London or throughout the UK. Um, obviously, it's the NICE guidelines as, as being a recommended uh, practice. Um, how are finding that clinicians are able to bridge that gap between this is the NICE guidelines, this is this dressing, in which you've had a, a really significant um, positive experience in terms of those are really outstanding rates of reduction of infection. How can we bridge that gap between, you know, if there's a clinician watching this now, Another obstetrician and is thinking, oh wow, these results are really significant. How can they bridge that gap? What would they need to do in order to um incorporate into their practice?
3: So I think it's a really good question. I've I've had it before. Um, there is lots of skepticism, I think, when when companies come to you with their product and say, look how great it is. Um, and I have to admit, I was exactly the same. And that was one of the reasons why we didn't just implement it based on the nice guidelines. We we kept this audit data. Um, and we were very clear that at the six month period, if it didn't improve infection rates and save us money, we were actually going to go back to our old dressing. Um, oh, yeah, you'd
0: have abandoned the study, presumably. Yeah, so it wasn't a whole yeah.
3: purchase for us that we were going to continue yeah. forever. Um, we wanted to make sure it did what it said on the tin. All I would say to my colleagues is I don't think you've got anything to lose by trying it. Yes, it is a little bit more expensive, but just try it for six months. Um, make sure you do collect your pre and post implementation data so you've got something to compare it to. But actually, if the worst case is you spend a little bit more money and you haven't reduced infection rates, then you probably need to look at other aspects as to why. But it is a really, really simple thing to do. And I would just urge you just to try it, even if it's for that six month period and see what your results are.
0: Thanks very much. And certainly the nice guidelines also encompass vascular surgery as part of that recommendation as well. So it's obviously there is something within the um, mechanism, as you've described it, that's that's aiding with that. And certainly Dr. Millen's talk uh, that also brings up other factors, isn't it? That, you know, if there is edema in the wound, Certainly, if this is binding bacteria in its mechanism, then perhaps it's addressing the the excess fluid, maybe secondary to lymphedema or um, generalized edema, I guess. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining this Mm -hmm. panel.
4: Uh, If we compare uh, the surgical site infections with developed countries and low and middle income countries, there's a huge difference because uh, in low and middle income countries the pooled incidence is approximately 12%. it's really unacceptable. and uh, if you cons- we consider the clinical outcomes of the surgical site infections uh, without any doubt it leads to significant patient morbidity and mortality and it extend the hospital stay. And patients who develop surgical site infections have a two to 11-fold higher risk of death. And we know that 75% of deaths in patients with surgical site infections are directly attributable to surgical site infections. Uh, We we have bunch of guidelines after uh, 2016, including NIST. I just uh, did not include NIST to this three guidelines uh, because they have some discrepancies about these three major guidelines with this one but uh, we we have definitely two national and society guidelines and we have a global guideline uh, which was published by world health organization in 2016 and we just did modify this guideline because of the hyperbaric oxygen recommendation so i i've I have no doubt that you just really get bored of those guidelines, uh, blah blah talks. But uh, without any doubt, with the published evidence-based prevention guidelines, uh, we we can prevent half of the surgical site infections. And there are some strong uh, consensus between those guidelines. And there are some issues that conflicts between those guidelines. So uh, if we we just want to summarize uh, the strongest agreement across the guidelines, we have five issues. One, parenteral antimicrobial prophylaxis. This is A1 recommendation in all true guidelines. And the second one is alcohol-based skin preparation and perioperative glycemic control is also have the uh, most important impact on surgical site infections, temperature regulation to normal thermia, and maintenance of normal tissue oxygenation. So beside these five uh, recommendations, remaining recommendations did not achieve unanimous agreement among these three guidelines. But there are some facts that have strong considerations like smoking cessation, stop hours screening and decolonization, colorectal surgery bundles, perioperative surgical attire, operating room traffic control and operating room disinfections, and also WHO perioperative checklist has really important uh, cornerstone in the prevention of surgical site infections. But there are some controversies uh, between some issues, some uh, prevention cautions, uh, like the prophylactic negative pressure wound therapy. In some kind of surgeries, it has a positive impact, but in some others, uh, this hasn't been proved yet. And also wound protectors and antiseptic impregnated seizures. So th- those issues I've been, uh, I think will be resolved in a couple of years and will be more crystal clear about those uh, issues. But after the global guideline that was published in 2016, uh, in the coming few years, couple of years, uh, that there's great uh, controversies in translating those guidelines to the bad side. I mean, from paper to the patient, we we have some challenge. So at the end of 2018, that I'm just very proud of to be part of the team uh, we just published and implementation manual uh, to, to just make this dogmatic knowledge to the clinical uh, best side knowledge. And we have a multimodal improvement strategy, which is embedded within each step in the cycle of continuous improvement. We have five main categories. First one is build it, the second teach it, then check it and sell it. And leave it. And we we know that uh, if we embody these five areas, applying to them to surgical site infection prevention activities as necessary, we we, we can do it. So to support to strengthen those implementation precautions, uh, we just published many brochures, leaflets, books, and also uh, published some YouTube videos on preoperative surgical skin preparation as. Uh, Surgical hand rubbing techniques and surgical wound evaluation and dressings, and also leadership is very important. Uh, Peter Natumba, a prominent uh, surgeon from Kenya, uh, just just lead that initiative and broadcast many leadership videos and those implementation packages make it real. And the hand hygiene awareness campaign is another example for this and also we we really have evidence that those implementation guidelines those bundles will do something and uh, at the end of 2019 and 2020 uh, there were some couple of uh, success stories in the literature published that that uh, that in a way uh, believe us that implementation guidelines have some impact on the outcomes even in low and middle income countries. So for the take-home message for IPC implementation, especially in low resource settings, we can say that the prioritization of feasible, but high impact pilots, such as starting with surgical site infection or small urinary tract infection or device associated infection in risky units, like intensive care will be a good point to start. And slowly scaling up in a stepwise manner and working from paper to electronic forms is a good trick. And mainstay of these strategies is the multidisciplinary collaboration and ensuring this multidisciplinary collaboration and mentorship, such as yearly surveillance seminars, site support visits to assess case findings and denominator data. And the integration of the health associated infections and Antimicrobial resistance surveillance efforts, including a multidisciplinary working group and a master trained in surveillance that could provide leadership to others, that's also an important fact. And we we definitely be crystal clear about definitions and careful concentrations of definitions before use is really critical vital. I mean, we we must know each other. We must hear each other, and we must understand each other, use the same terminology and definitions, and also clear procedures for data management and promotion of data for action. And if you summarize the come points of success stories, the multidisciplinary, perioperative stuff is, is the leading point in SSI improvement efforts. And leadership participation is really critical And it may extend to government officials, especially in low middle-income countries. The the third one is education to increase knowledge of best practices. We definitely know that insufficient knowledge of evidence-based recommendations is a significant barrier to the adaptation of clinical practice guideline. And almost all success stories incorporated an evaluation strategy to monitor performance and provide feedback to frontline staff. I mean, without monitoring and without giving feedback, you cannot just write a success story. And thank you for your all attention and inviting me to talk. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Tarasa, that was a really interesting overview of the challenges faced globally with managing surgical site infections. What do you think is going to be one of the most um, challenging aspects for low-income countries in moving forward with battling with surgical site infection?
4: Uh, I mean, besides some some implementation uh, challenges, uh, that those have a limited resource in those facilities and they have challenged to create a surgical ecosystem which is safe and which is sustainable. So the most important fact for me is is creating a surgical safe ecosystem which is sustainable uh, with with clinical practice guidelines, with impl- implementation strategies and with leadership uh and also with continuous educational improvements
0: thank you very much dr Rasa. really appreciate your input how does the panel feel about um through sort of the overview that dr milan's give, given i mean in your practice uh dr rasa do you Do you have any sort of um, patients that fit that sort of uh, lymphaticovenous um, dysfunction that may be contributing to the problems that Mark has spoken about?
4: Yeah uh, I'm not primarily vascular surgeons, but uh, my vasculars are usually encountering those problems and uh, I will strongly agree that uh, negative pressure wound therapy has a positive impact on outcomes, uh, mainly in surgical side infections. And this is an impressive talk. I really congratulate.
0: Thank you very much. And Michael, do you have any comments? You're coming from the sort of more obstetric field. And Dr. Millen has obviously brought up an really important modality of negative pressure wound therapy. But obviously, there are certain patients in different subgroups that may be suitable for some um, their modality of treatment. And what, what's your view on that?
3: I think in general, obstetric patients are often thought as, of as the fit, healthy young women. But nowadays, obesity rates are going up, more and more women are presenting with gestational diabetes. I think all of those things that Mark's talked about are very correct. Um, We're dealing with more complex um, patients with lots of comorbidities. Often women are now getting older when they're pregnant with more cardiovascular disease. Um, And definitely all that lymphatic um, drainage is really important. So I think um, one of the things we've worked on a lot is, is around the wound dressings. Um, and how different types of wound dressings can be used to reduce infection rates. Um, But I guess in terms of nutrition, we've got a very limited window in terms of time frame that we can work on for these women in terms of what they can actually do to improve.
0: Yes. And in terms of guidelines from coming from a UK perspective, Michael, sort of looking at um, sort of nice guidelines. uh, Are you able to give us a bit of an overview of how, you know, how that works for your practice?
3: Yes, so we have um, nice surgical sites reduction um, guidelines, um, and they talk about some of the key factors. So in terms of um, alcohol-based skin preparation, they talk about maintaining uh, normothermia during the operations, and obviously adequate ventilation during during theatre cases, um, controlling glycemic control. So we have those markers that we work on. Within England, we actually don't have a national database or registry of surgical site infections. Um, And our hospital episode statistics, which is our HES data, which is what all hospitals report centrally, often is at least six months old before it gets to you. So in terms of trying to use that data for improvement, it's actually quite hard because it's very hard to work out what is the national rate for surgical site infections and where do you as a hospital sit within that? And therefore, what can you
0: do about it? Interesting. And uh, may I ask you, um, in terms of the the percentage of patients you think uh, your practice in a vascular surgery practice that have lymphatic venous insufficiency or dysfunction, um, in terms of contributing to the overall picture of surgical wound infection, how many, so what percentage do you think have this undetected in the general surgical practice? So say someone who's coming for a procedure which is non-vascular, what percentage do you think of those patients that are struggling to heal their wounds or have surgical site infections have undetected, you know, album levels which are low or lymphaticovenous dysfunction, glycopylics?
5: It's Most funny. of the data shows that, especially from a pure venous standpoint or phlebal lymphedema, as it's called, uh, Wade Farrell, ward an excellent paper about this previously that showed that certainly in a C6 patient, everybody has uncontrolled lymphedema. Um, in the patients with non-healing wounds that we see in our clinic, such as pyoderma, the atypicals, the diabetic foot ulcerations, I'm finding that well over 80% of our patients have uncontrolled dermal lymphatic uh, functionality. And I think part of it is just the, we are in our wound clinic are so tuned into this now in terms of management of the lymphedema component of it. I think there's a, there's a great opportunity to fill this gap for other wound clinics, as well as helping other surgeons understand lymphedema, which we really didn't get much training about this in medical school, nor in our surgical training. And obviously with the shift in the Starling cur- or Starling functionality, understanding the components of albumin, the importance of the uh, endothelial glycocalyx, it, it's just another great opportunity to help teach our each other as colleagues, as well as teaching, rechanging changing the, the discussion within medical schools that, so that patients start paying, people start understanding the lymphatics, right away earlier in their career.
0: It's really interesting because I remember obviously in medical school and during surgical training, there was the anecdotal sort of um, be careful of, of operating on a patient with lymphedema. It'd be very difficult to get them healed. But now we've moved, you know, in the space of a couple of decades, we've moved forward to the stage where, you know, we've got very detailed ways of identifying these patients very early and giving them the best possible results. So, Michael, can I ask, is this a dressing you would put on at the time when you're doing your salarian sections? It's an intraoperative dressing that you would, when you've, when you've closed the wound, you, you'd use that dressing straight away.
3: Yeah. So as soon as we close the wound, um, we apply a wound dressing. And previously we were using a dressing called Mepo, and that was really yeah. a dressing that mainly just soaked up a bit of ooze. Um, and prevented the wound getting too dirty and mainly prevented women's clothes from getting dirty as well but didn't have any fancy properties so these are actually wound dressings that are applied as a preventative measure it's not something that we wait for an infection to happen and then we're using it to try and treat an infection this is very much preventative Great, thank you This is not private medicine where it's one consultant doing um, operations doing it in their own way this is yeah. a, a department where we've got twenty three plus consultants, many junior doctors. Um, so yeah. you, we have a variety of different surgical operators, all of whom will have slightly different techniques or wound, wound yeah. closure methods. Um,
0: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still significant statistically significant, even in the hands of intervariability of clinicians that are actually doing the procedure. So that's really, yeah, it's really interesting.
3: Research, I, yeah. think on, I think on that point, one of the really important things to say is this was it wasn't set up as a randomised control study. This is very much real world data. So this is an audit yeah. of uh, previous outcomes versus our outcomes after dressing application. So these are very much clinically significant results. The results are extremely positive, um, but we haven't <laughs> made sure that the results were powered high enough to confirm or not whether or not these were statistically significant.
0: But actually, you know, I think obviously I'm sure you've come across this in your practice as well, that obviously with the pandemic and a lot of RCTs having to be stopped during uh, that pandemic and lockdown period. In fact, real world data has very much kind of taken on new legs and is and is the way forward for um drawing a lot of these clinical um conclusions that you know we've had over the last two to three years, a lot of so those clinical guidance and decisions were made based on real world data uh, pretty much similar to what you've done in your unit so that's great yeah.
3: and i think that was one of the reasons i stressed around the sort of number of women that we're delivering in our hospital we do Houston, we have managed yeah. to get a large amount of data and we didn't change anything at all apart from the wound dressing so i think we can be pretty sure that actually most of these effects were due to the wound dressing switch
0: Michael, just ask you, how easy was dressing to actually teach uh, staff to use in terms of were there sort of any challenges you faced or was it something that was quite easily adoptable in in your department?
3: So in terms of the dressing itself, it's extremely easy to apply. There's no fancy um, method of application. It has to be applied without tension, um, but I mean our, our our scrub nurses picked it up extremely quickly. It it was applied in a very similar manner to our previous dressings.
5: The main um, dressing. Unlike some
3: of the unlike I guess some of the vacuum suction dressings that people might use. It, it was very, very easy.
0: And so traditionally you would have used sterry strips and then mepour on on the wound, or would you have just used me pour traditionally?
3: So very rarely do we use sterry strips. Um, one of the things that we did with this project is we didn't change anything else so most of our all of our women you have their abdomens clean with chloroprep and Mm -hmm. we didn't change anything like that we didn't change the sutures we didn't change how the surgeons closed the wound so for us this was six months of data where everything was the same beforehand everything was exactly the same afterwards the only thing that we changed was the different type of dressing